0: Bridge 105
1: Radio. Women making waves.
2: So, I had a really interesting couple of evenings actually at Linda a couple of weeks ago. We have a family friend, in fact, it's Simon's cousin, who I think have just been brilliant actually. They have decided to host three families, three families in their house. And they say it's been life enriching to have three families who have come from Ukraine. Of course, we're talking about the Ukrainian war at the moment. And they have decided they want to help and they're hosting three families. It's pretty amazing, isn't
0: it? It really is. That is absolutely brilliant. We thought about doing the same and so did my sister-in-law. Mm. My, my sister-in-law stays, um, stays in the Highlands and the problem actually that they had was nobody particularly wanted to be as far out as she was you know away from away from the main cities and from potentially their other friends and family, understandably, because people will want to stay in contact with well, not just their family but other Ukrainians as well. well. That's
2: it. That's right. It's all very well saying, isn't it? That they're going to come over here in and, and, and the UK and be safe. But it's not as simple as that, is it?
0: No, not at all. Not at all. And you, you probably want to be where you can buy food that you're used to eating and all that Sadly. kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing particularly simple about this. And, of course, I think a lot of Ukrainians have chosen to stay quite close to Ukraine as well. All, of course, hoping to go back home as soon as this war is over and start rebuilding mm.
2: the country again. Don't we all wish for it to be over very soon? Absolutely. Poor Ukrainian people, basically. It's it's really harsh. And on that note, we spoke to someone very, very interesting, didn't we? Yes, we
0: did indeed. We did indeed. We're going to be speaking to Tetyana Preobrazhenska. And she has actually chosen to stay in Kyiv they did move out of Kyiv for a little while when the Russians were nearby and it was shelled. But they are now back in Kyiv. You'll hear what Titiana says. Very, very interesting conversation with her. And we also have been chatting to a composer. That's exciting, isn't it? Because we've had we've had lots of musicians on in the past, but this is an actual composer of classical music, Susie. We're going up in the world, I think.
2: <laughs> we are going up in the world. I think it's also really interesting as well that she was and is still an entertainment lawyer and she decided, didn't she, that she wanted to change career. And I, I really, really enjoy listening to women who decide they want to do something very different
0: that's absolutely right and her name is lisa logan and she she has recently had not just one but two <laughs> premieres of her work it's all kind of coming to a head for her and she's really thrilled and excited about it so we're going to have an absolutely great chat with lisa logan as well but first we're going to hear from ukrainian Tetiana preobrazhenshka
2: You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. We're joined
0: today by Tetyana Preobrazhenska, who is a marketing communication specialist and translator working for an IT organization in Ukraine. When the war started, Tetyana chose to stay in Kyiv And we would like to hear her story. Welcome to Women Making Waves, Tatiana.
2: Thank you. Hello, everybody. Hi there. Nice to have you on
3: Women Making Waves.
0: So tell us a little about what you do for a living.
3: I'm a marketing communication specialist in a special organization. It's an IT organization which um, delivers uh, digital services. For a Ukrainian research and education institutions. It is called URAN and uh, it is in the REN of Ukraine National Research and Education Network.
0: To come straight to it, on the 24th of February, Russia yes. invaded Ukraine. There was a bit of a build-up, though, prior to the invasion. What was the atmosphere like in Kiev at that point? It must have been pretty frightening.
3: It was, but you know, it was a mixture of uh, some feelings because all the people reacted differently, and myself as well. Because you've heard all those news, you've read it, and there was the fear. There were some facts that you understand that they are. They gather the army. And it might mean the war, but nobody, and included me and my family, we did not believe it could happen in reality. I remember I was asking my dad, who is 70 years old, and I was asking him, dad, if it really will be the case. But I remember he answered, do you really believe they could bomb the Kiev? Yeah. Nobody believed, and... um, We even had a party a couple days before the war because my husband had his birthday and we had a birthday party. And that was when our family, big family, gathered together for the last time since the war. I hope it will be.
2: I remember at the beginning, Tatiana, when we had the news about, you know, the simmering moment of it all trying to take place. And when it actually happened, when the first of the bombs arrived and there was obviously some panic in the cities, it was extraordinary. But people just turned around to the camera, the TV camera, and said, this is 2022 Why is this happening? Everyone is just aghast. We're supposed to be in a modern world, aren't we? But I I guess that's what you were thinking why now why 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 is it happening or did you did you sort of realize that at some stage that it was simmering behind but would they really do it
3: i don't think i was th- was thinking about why now because actually the war was already in ukraine for 8 years before that it's just uh, for example me and my family we didn't feel it so much as people in the eastern part of Ukraine, where the war had uh, had taken place for eight years. But the war was there on our threshold. And um, it wasn't about the timing, I think. It was more about the fact itself Mm. that Mm. it's impossible really to to imagine, even to imagine the full-scale combats, bombing all these things that uh, i have seen previously just in the movies about the first or second world war really it's it's unbelievable
0: it mm. is actually it is i think it's given all of us a lot to think about because yeah. it is like it just makes you think what if that was here you know yeah. what if did lots of people that you knew, did
3: they start to leave or talk about leaving at that point? Some of them were leaving even before, but uh, mostly people began leaving on the 24th and after. Mm. After the bombing began, after the war began. Yes, I know a lot of people who lived. Yes. Was that something that you ever considered? Honestly, no, not, not. My husband insisted I to leave. He was very persistent. And I think every moment we talked uh, for a couple of weeks, especially that we had a lot of offers from our colleagues abroad to help us, to help me, because he cannot leave. He is a man uh, who should stay in a country because he is of military age still. But um, deep in my heart, I didn't um, want to. And I didn't do it. I decided to stay as far as I can be with my husband and with my younger son and my two brothers who are still here. (laughs) I cannot imagine uh, how to live without my family. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, one of my brother's wife, she has a small daughter, toddler, and uh, they left uh, for France. In the first week, and when she was already settled in France and writing to me and crying a lot about she's uh, very far from her beloved husband and from her home. I remember uh, thinking about I would feel the same. I cannot survive mentally, could not survive without, without my loved ones uh, being near me. And I, I understand that she was saving a small daughter, but I have no one to save except myself. And that's not the case I want to do, uh, except only the situation will become so terrible, so horrible. I'm just a weak woman and I cannot be frightened so much that I can think about mm-hmm. running away. But thanks God, uh, it's yeah. not the case for now. But Tatiana, it's it, there's no
2: right or wrong in these situations, is there? You yes. Either, you you either decide it. It really is up to the individual. Definitely. And, and, yes. and I get the impression from you that. You absolutely feel for all the people, your friends, the, the population in Ukraine who have gone abroad for whatever oh, reason. Yeah, but it, it, you know, I look at that and my heart breaks, as you say, when you rip a family and a community apart. And on the same token, you're torn because you want to stay, but yet there is that that moment, isn't there, where you think, I wonder if I should.
0: Huge dilemma. And, you know, I, I can't make up my mind whether it's braver to stay or braver to go because it's, it's a horrible decision to have to make. There's no good answer there, is there? They're both awful decisions in some respects, because if you stay, you, you don't know what's going to happen. Yes. But if you go, you don't know what's going to happen. It's a horrible, horrible dilemma, really.
3: I haven't thought about
0: it so much until I've heard you speaking just now. There's no easy answer to this.
3: There is no easy answer. And uh, you might try to imagine that it's not a calm situation when you can uh, just sit and plan and think about everything. It's really horrible. All the time you feel fear uh, and confusion. The main feelings I remember from that time, and you are very, very worried about your kids about your loved ones, because they are not all the time near you, nearby. And when you hear the explosion sounds, you just want to know if they are all right. And in these circumstances, to try and make the right decision, there is really no right decision.
0: No, there isn't.
3: You never know what will happen. And we had a lot, a lot of discussions either to move to more safe place inside Ukraine, Uh, together with my husband even this was difficult to decide because even the road the trip to that place is dangerous you even don't know what could happen while you are uh, at the road so yes it was hot it was tough
0: yeah I can imagine
3: what's been
2: a very important change for you living in kiev and ukraine now i mean obviously it's the bombing and 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 the unknown but from a day-to-day lifestyle what's really changed in in your life the daily
3: routine yeah <laughs> it is now depending on air raid alarms actually we went to another city for two months or we lived in western ukraine in lviv for two months now we are back in kyiv and uh, when we were there everything has changed because you are far from your from your ordinary normal environment uh, from your neighborhood you don't know anything and you still have bombing there but at least at that time, there were no active combat there in Western Ukraine. That's why we decided we should have a try and relocate there. Because um, we relocated on the third week of war from Kiev. And um, the enemy's troops were near Kiev and somewhere on its outskirts. Yeah so it was dangerous to stay we afraid of occupation could start even. so and uh, the daily routine even after returning is different for example i sleep more in mornings i get up later than usually because it's uh, often the air raid alarms at night and i cannot force myself leave the bed But uh, fortunately, I can walk remotely and it gives me a chance to change my schedule, my daily schedule. My kids are no longer living with us as they used uh, before war. They are grown up uh, guys, but still they were here. Uh, We had a lot of their friends here, a friendly and noisy flat, Uh, but now it's come and empty <laughs> and um, a lot of new feelings a lot of new little bit uh, philosophic if you can say that um mm-hmm. state of mind because i began um, to understand uh, how precious very simple things are the mm-hmm. coffee the mm-hmm. sun some calm sounds sounds of my neighborhood mm-hmm. smells Not of the smoke, but of spring, for example. These feelings became very intense, like you can even cry from it. Just like that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And do the men in Ukraine, do they show their emotions like women do about the war? Do they talk about it? Like, I think women are very good at talking about mm-hmm. things that need to be talked about. Do you find they are able to talk about how you have very eloquently said to us about things that have changed through the day? Do they talk about it?
3: It differs from men to men, as you can imagine. <laughs> My husband is, uh, is a sensitive man. Yes, we can talk about it. And I'm grateful for that because I can share my feelings with him and to hear about uh, his feelings. My elder son, he is far from me, he is abroad. He's stuck there because he was on a business trip when it began. And he talked about it as well uh, in messages, we chat. And my younger one, he is 19 years old. He was calming me mm-hmm. when I was very, very afraid. He is tall and a thin oh. and he was hugging me. Oh. And yes, and when I could not decide either we have to leave, either we have to stay and I talked to him how I'm afraid and he was talking oh. to me as well and <laughs> said very grown up things for me. Yeah. very adult for example my my father he is more um not so tend to share his emotions to yes. show
1: them yeah
3: and he is abroad now uh, we are far from each other but he tends to talk not so much about what but his feelings about what i mean yeah. but about his feelings to me and okay. that's very different from what's Earlier. Yes, and very touching and yes. very supportive yeah that's great
0: it must be amazing actually because I guess you have conversations now that you wouldn't have dreamt of having when you weren't in that situation actually I can imagine yes. Yeah. Just after the invasion, on the television news, we were watching people in communities, groups of women, learning how to make Molotov cocktails and learning how to fire guns and all of that kind of thing. Did you see any of that going on? Were you aware of that?
3: I know about that, but I don't know anyone personally who is involved in active war. I mean, among women. Mm-hmm. I know the men who are, but not women. But yes, our women are very brave and strong. And I saw a lot of this content in social media and so on. And uh, uh, for example, the wife of people who gave us shelter in uh, Western Ukraine, she is in the army. I'm not acquainted with her myself, but she is in the army. actively involved yeah women are, are not weaker than the men here. no no with a great spirit and a big desire to defend the country yes. yeah
0: i think yeah. that's something that's come across to the whole world actually about how brave people are in ukraine and from your president right That way everyone's defiant and everyone's kind of going no you're not coming into our country yes. and you know i think that's really admirable. I think that the whole world is amazed and proud of Ukraine. Susie was asking earlier about everyday life. What about the shops? Are you still able to buy the same amount of food and clothes and all
3: of that kind of thing? It depends from city to city because if you are somewhere in the eastern Ukraine now, you definitely cannot buy anything and they cannot even have food cooked or something because everything is ruined and doesn't work. But here... In the first days, it was difficult to find um, some food and grocery, not because they were not here, but because a lot of people who walked in shops and so on, some of them went to the army, some of them became refugees. So there were not people to walk because I can talk about my experience in Kiev only or in Lviv. And uh, here from the first days of war, You can imagine that all the stocks did not uh, disappear. They were there on the shelves, but there were not people who can uh, sell it, for example. There were difficulties with bread because people were buying it for the first thing. And our plant who produces the bread, all the drivers went to army and there were no drivers to deliver bread to shops. And a lot of shops were closed for first weeks. Some of them are still closed, especially the small one. But uh, the big one, especially grocery, they are working and... Almost all the food is there. Not all, but almost all. We are lucky here, really, comparing to to the oh, east sort of Ukraine. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. even Kharkiv, even south. We we are lucky here in Kiev. It must have been such a relief
0: when you were able to come back to Kiev. I'm assuming that was when the Russian army pulled back and decided to take themselves down to the east. Actually which was awful. But it must have been a relief for you to get back home at that stage.
3: Yes, a great relief. I couldn't wait when we came back gotcha. uh, because, yes, I, I was missing my home and uh, a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, I was very happy when we, we when we returned. Although all my plants were dead. dry. Oh, no. <laughs> not all, not all. One of them survived.
2: When you are in a war like you are at the moment and who knows we all wish it would just finish it really would when you look at the news coverage do you find sometimes that you want to switch off and you don't want to keep hearing the news because it's the same old stuff or do you find that you have to it's very important to listen to the news and what's happening on a day-to-day basis how do you cope with the news every day
3: (sighs) It's difficult to cope, really. It's like you feel need to know and uh, to check often. Now it's just often. At the beginning, it was always, every minute, all the time. Now it's often. In the same time, you really want to switch off everything and not to know not to hear, not to read. I almost read, not hearing the news, because to see or to hear is more horrible for me than to read. It's uh, my way to cope. But I understand that I cannot switch off uh, the news totally because uh, elsewhere I I became to be worried what is happening. I need to know and I don't want to know at yeah. the same time. Yeah. It's very, yeah. yeah, very true. I, I
0: think it, it brought the situation home to me when we were talking the other day to Tiana and I said to you, can we record this interview at eight o'clock at night? And you said, well, it's not a great idea because that's really when the air raids start to get really, really bad. And then we'd probably have to stop doing the recording and I'd have to move out into you know, safety. And it kind of really brought it home to me that your day-to-day life is about the war really isn't it you, you are in constant danger and you were also talking about an app that you have tell us about the app yes
3: we have an app that makes a very very huge sound of a Syrian when there is an air raid danger and then we need to go to shelters now everyone decides for themselves where and how to hide from the bombing. This app doesn't mean that uh, the bomb will will necessarily hit uh, your neighborhood. It means that there is a danger that some missile was launched and uh, they cannot predict the uh, strict direction of where it will go. But they uh, warn us. And this is the moment when everybody needs to decide either to go to some bob shelter. But uh, most people now, at least in Kiev, hide uh, not in the basements, but in the um, hallways or landings and something like that. And when when the danger is off, uh, then the another sound. One out about this and... We can um, continue with our everyday life.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: and uh, And that's why I said that my everyday routine was uh, the main thing, what has changed, because, for example, uh, can you imagine when we have online meeting or something and air raid alarm sounds? and I need to postpone all my work because it's not comfortable to walk in a small hallway with laptop on my knees sometimes I do it because I need to because the work is urgent but most times you just sit and check the news just to know that everything is okay in your neighborhood and with your loved ones And sometimes these can continue for two hours or even three hours. It can be at night um, and you cannot sleep properly.
2: How did you get to know that the best places to take cover were the areas that you were talking about? How did you decide that's what you were going to do? Were you given advice or was it a community collective decision or was it your area that you live in? How did you all decide where the safest place would be?
3: Before the war, we were warned by the government that in case of war and bombing there are the shelters in the city And each city even had its own map of the shelters. Unfortunately, there are not proper bomb shelters in Ukraine because we were a peaceful country. So the most often ordinary basement of ordinary houses were used as bomb shelters. And um, first several uh, nights I spent in such basement of my house, apartment house, where I live. But, you know, uh, you are not prepared to such experience and you don't know for sure what's the best way to do. And what we have done, we searched information online and uh, in social media. And there were advices of people who are experienced in war in surviving, who, uh, for example, uh, told about uh, the rule of two walls. I don't know if you are familiar with that. And that's why we decided to hide where we are hiding now, because it turned out that if you don't have a bomb shelter, it could be dangerous to hide in a basement, in ordinary basement, because... If the house collapses, rains, you can be trapped under all these wreckals. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, who knows, will you be safe or not? That is why it might be more safe for missile strikes, not very often bombing and fire. In our case, it will be safer to use this uh, rule of two walls when one wall is the wall where the windows are. Wall to the outside wall, <sighs> and you should sit or hide after the second wall. For example, in a hallway, because the first wall takes the strike, mm-hmm. the hit, and the second one takes uh, the pieces of uh, everything yeah. that, the, which the, the rubble, which yeah, has yeah. exploded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah,
2: it's almost the buffer, isn't it? Yes, well,
3: that, that's. It cannot defend from the straight missile hit. No, but it can defend from if the missile hit somewhere nearby.
0: Tatiana, we've never, on Women Making Waves, had a conversation like this before. (laughs) (laughs) And it's absolutely fascinating for us, but also awful, because people should not be having to live the way that you're living in fear. So sorry. And I really, really hope it's going to be over soon.
2: Is there anything you want to say, Tatiana, to the audience if there was something that you'd like to get across and, and some more
3: message? Maybe from my experience that we need to live the full life every minute we have an opportunity to do this because you never know what can happen. We never expected the war really will happen. And now I understand how important it is to enjoy every moment of your life and to be aware of dangers that could happen still and to be prepared to defend yourself and your family. It may sound strange, but even in our modern world, it is important to be prepared to a lot of things that could happen to anyone in any place of the world unfortunately so if you can enjoy your life and remember that it's beautiful Mm -hmm. and remember that it's very fragile and if you can help those you love or those you know or those you don't know even but you want to help Help them because a lot of people now, not only Ukrainian, are in need of help because it's terrible to be far from home and not to know when you can come back and to be worried about what will happen to your loved ones who are here. And I feel very grateful uh, to those who are helping us all around the world, all of our people. That's incredible, this this level of support and help. We appreciate it a lot. Thank you. Thank you very much
0: indeed, Tatiana Prejobrazinska, for taking the time out to talk to us today.
2: Coming up shortly, we'll be hearing from composer and entertainment lawyer Lisa Logan.
1: Cambridge 105 Radio. Cambridge Breakfast
3: with Julian Clover and Lucy Milazzo. It's the
0: breakfast show that's all about Cambridge. We've got the news.
1: National and local.
0: Travel updates.
1: From the A14 to Milton Boat and all stations to Cambridge. The people and the places. Plus guests in our Friday Food Club. Cambridge Juice. All the new things to do in the city. Our
0: daily quiz. Oh,
2: yes, questions, questions with Lucian.
0: And all requests Jukebox Friday. And
1: don't forget the coffee.
0: Cambridge Breakfast with Julian Clover and Lucy Milanzo.
1: Here with a fresh blend weekday mornings from Seven.
2: What's in your spare room? Christmas decorations? Maybe an old exercise bike? Could you give that room to a young person along with a fresh start? St. Christopher's Fellowship is looking for people to become foster carers in Cambridgeshire to provide safe, caring homes for teenagers who need help. And because we've been working to improve young people's lives since 1870, you can trust that you're not on your own. You'll receive regular training, dedicated social worker support and space to share experiences with other carers. It's more than a spare room, it's a brighter future. Call 0800 234 6282 or visit stchris.org.uk slash fostering. St Christopher's, creating brighter futures.
0: Hi, Pam here. Are you tired of the same old shops? Drop into Fantasia on Mill Road near Parker's Peace. Enter our treasure cave full of fine clothing and exotic homewares. Natural materials, uplifting ambiance, mood improvement guaranteed. Perk up your wardrobe, your home, your life. Dare to shop different. Fantasia, 64 Mill Road, Cambridge. Fantasia.uk.com
3: for opening times, please see fantasia.uk.com. Cambridge
2: 105 Radio. You're listening to Women Making Waves Radio Show and Podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing
3: extraordinary things.
2: Lisa
0: Logan is a composer whose first opera, A Silver Spoon, the love story of Princess Diana and Dodie, will premiere in July 2022. But Lisa's already busy workshopping her second opera, Bronte, and her children's piece, The Magical Fish, is also premiering in June as part of the Jubilee celebrations with Dockland Sinfonia. And I know, Lisa, that you have already done lots of other works. Lisa you're really really busy at the moment so thank you very much for taking the time out to talk to us today.
1: Hi there good to chat with you today.
0: Let's go right back when did you first get into music and singing when when did it first appeal to you?
1: I mean, all the way through my childhood, I, I sang. So I sang in a Leicester children's choir, I think it was the first time I did lots of singing. Then um, I sang in Leicester Cathedral Choir and I was at Leicester Grammar School and sang in a couple of choirs there. So that's where it all started.
0: And you ended up going to Cambridge. So how did that come about? Because you were a choral scholar. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, I, I had a really happy time at Cambridge. So I was a choral scholar at Gonville and Keys College. And um, that was a sort of very busy schedule, you know, three services a week and um, two rehearsals. And it's, it's the most incredible musical training.
0: Did you study law at that point as well? Was that what your studies were?
1: Yeah. So I, I read law at Cambridge, was a choral scholar. I I think I wasn't the best law student and it probably represents that it wasn't well you know I I don't say not my real calling because I do still enjoy doing it as my job but um, it's certainly music and drama has always I feel been quite a calling as well so um, yeah I you know I I kind of got told off for doing far too many extracurricular things. I'm
2: tempted, I must ask this, the law, you know, it's wonderful that you do that at Cambridge, but I know music is also quite an amazing degree at Cambridge too. What tempted you to go from music to law? Is that something that you were sort of in a quandary about when you went to university? Just
0: meaning, yeah. was it your dad or your mum?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you well do law. Yeah. No, I think, I think, you know, my my background, I guess, is a little bit unusual because I found composing and music later on in life. So I was never introduced to composing or really taught music particularly well at school in an academic side. So I didn't do what was then O level, I didn't do A level, and I was not exposed to it at all. All I did is singing. So the singing was fantastic. Yeah, so I wasn't on the academic path to think about doing it at Cambridge. And it's just been since um, I've been doing a master's in composition at King's College London the last few years. So that's where the academics came in. But later.
0: What did you do when you left Cambridge? What did you do next?
1: Yeah, so um, when I um, left Cambridge, so at Cambridge I sort of had law and um, music and opera running in parallel in a sense so I was uh, in my 20s I was an opera and theatre director professionally so I worked at Opera North and assisted David McVicker. and I was an assistant director at one of the regional theatres so that's what I did when I first when I first left Cambridge.
0: Oh that's amazing that is amazing Mm. did you enjoy that that must have been really exciting.
1: Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed that. What happened was, and it's just isn't a bit of a sob story, but I guess it's, you know, explains why I made the change to use my law degree is I got into a lot of debt. It just, um, I think now everybody's paid for what they do when I went into that career loads of it was unpaid work even all the assistant directing and I got myself into a lot of debt and so that was when I had a conversation it wasn't the dad but it was the godfather my godfather Jack <laughs> <laughs> took me out for lunch when I had done my opera north job and said Lisa <laughs> I think you should use your law degree. So that's what happened. You know, I kind of I was doing what I loved. I couldn't afford to do it. I'm not from a particularly affluent background. And um, yeah, I just couldn't afford to support myself with it. So that's what I used my law degree. And I did the sensible thing of qualifying to be a lawyer. Well,
0: mm. you certainly have been successful because I know the firm that you work for and it is a leading law firm. I worked in the legal sector myself and I know how demanding it is. How the heck do you find the time to do all of the things that you're doing? It's quite demanding, really quite a demanding career.
1: I do often think, what if I discovered composing earlier? But so I've got children and my children are now 14 and 16. And I just think I could never have done this when I got primary age children. So, yes, Mm -hmm. I love my legal career, but, you know, I I can do it and I've got the brain space for it and then I've. Wanted to be a good mother. So there's no way I could have composed at that stage because, you know, children came first and I would not have had the time to dedicate to it. Whereas now they're teenagers, they're embarrassed by being near their mother. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) they don't want want any time with me. And so that's (laughs) when I started composing. You know, I know it probably doesn't make sense to all the sort of, I have to say, sort of, typical white male composers out there. But, you know, it's kind of, for me, it's like, well, actually, this kind of makes sense because now I have time to compose in an evening and a weekend. Yes, I'm a lawyer by day and I'm happy with that life choice because I've got a family to support and because they don't need me as much, now I've got time to compose. So for me, it's like, it's explaining why this has come later in my life. And I feel that if I found it earlier, so let's say 15 years ago, I discovered composing. I think that wouldn't have been so good because then I would never have, you know, the hours I dedicate to it, I wouldn't have done it that time. I would have probably thought, oh, I love that, put it aside, never done it. Whereas I started it when I had time. You know, I I think some of my story is about how do women compose? And I know some of it's a story of someone discovering composing later, but I feel my story is also about how do women do it when they've got children and when do they compose? And I feel part of my story is all about the time to do something when your children are slightly older,
2: Mm. Yeah. But it strikes me then, Lisa, that there are times in our lives where we have the the creative moments or the motivation to do something. So does that reflect in how you compose and what you're composing? At the time you just said one of yours was the the children's um, music. Is that something that you wouldn't have done beforehand because having children is obviously giving you that insight? but. Do you find that your whole interest in certain styles and genres of the opera has really changed, too, since since university?
1: Um, I certainly think that when you're composing about big life emotions or moments, that it's so much better when you do it when you're older. And I think sometimes directors would say this too, or actors that there's things you don't understand in your 20s. Yep.
3: It's
1: very um, true. So I feel that was so much of what I'm composing with the different stories at the moment, for sure. I, th- I think th- I think that's right, Susie.
0: Mm. I'm curious because you started as a singer. At mm. what point did you decide to start composing? Was it something that was always in you, or did you reach a point of going, you know what? I quite fancy writing this myself.
1: I often think, if only I would discovered how much I love composing. So so long ago because you know I love it so much I kind of think how did I not know all I can say is I just didn't so what happened is I mean this really might make you chuckle so when my son was around age nine he was doing the 11 plus which is horrendous I don't know if it's the horrendous in Cambridge too but it's horrendous the London system so I was trying to get him in the music scholarships and so I took him for composing lessons because I thought and apply for the 11 plus music scholarships you know might quite help if he composes a piece or something so anyway we took him to the these composing lessons and he was really rather grumpy and you know so I basically said to the teacher I said look my son's a bit grumpy about this I don't suppose you'd teach me instead is what happened (laughs) so this so this 11 plus guy suddenly ended up with the mum I mean it's really I do just do chuckle about it all and so (laughs) then I just realized it was like I explain it to people it's like there being this language where you're suddenly fluent. I don't know if you heard when people like suddenly have a brain injury and they suddenly they're fluent in Chinese or something. But basically I did these composition lessons that was meant to be my son. And basically I took over and I just literally within a month, I just realized I just, got everything it was the the strangest thing and of course I'm still learning an enormous amount but it was it was really literally like becoming fluent fast in something yeah. and I, then I realized how much I loved it and then this original teacher was off on honeymoon he said I can't teach you for three months and I thought I can't have a gap you know I'm loving this <laughs> and so yeah, and so then I found another teacher who has ended up being my teacher all the way through. And he is, I say he's like being taught by contemporary Mozart. He's somebody called Michael Susani wills he, He's just the most amazing teacher. And so that's what happened. I was concerned about being seen as being self-taught because there are quite a lot of self-taught composers out there. And I was concerned about being seen as an older woman suddenly composing, self-taught and being really dismissed. And so I thought I really just need to fill in some gaps here. So I did a music A-level <laughs> In a year, and Trinity Laban took me on, and then King's College, who originally actually rejected me when I did the music A level, and that's then when I got um the premiere for a silver spoon accepted. Said no, we're going to give you a place on the masters without you having to do a, B- a BA. Because I said I don't want to do a music BA. I've got a BA, you know. I yeah. just want to do the composing. So that's what happened. Um, so King's College then took me on for the masters in composition, and um, yeah. So I've just had an array of brilliant teachers and really dedicated myself to it. Did you at
2: some stage, and you have the most amazing experience and you definitely can do it, I'm not questioning that, but did you have the imposter syndrome at any stage?
1: It's funny because, you know, I'd I'd be so loved to hear the other women you interview. So Mm. I think coming into this older, I'm really keen never to be arrogant. But this is how I think. And I don't see this just with music. I see this with women everywhere still. I don't like the glass ceiling. I think there is glass ceilings everywhere still. So the way I explain it to people is this. There's a room with a glass ceiling and I'm not going in it. I don't <laughs> enter the room with the glass ceiling. Yeah. I do this my way and my way isn't a room and it doesn't have a roof.
0: I think so that's this is good. Ha-
1: yeah. This is how I think because I applied to the Guildhall for that opera course. And honestly, I mean, I didn't really should. I mean, I, I clearly wasn't a fit because I just had too much independent thought. But that to me was the glass ceiling, but King's College gave me a chance, Sylvania Milstein, mm. and she's been incredible. Mm. So, so not an imposter syndrome, but I think there's a lot of glass ceilings around there and I just didn't want to get stuck. Yeah. So I know there's many people way better than me. I don't feel it's, it's an imposter syndrome, but I certainly never want to be arrogant. I'm still learning. So even yesterday when I had a lesson with Sylvania and I said to her, I said, it's funny, everything feels like this hill where you got to the top of it and you think I know it now but you just don't see the mountain you know so (laughs) so, so, yeah so by size chunks (laughs) yeah so I feel there's lots of hills I, you know like it's a bit misty you don't quite see that mountain so yeah so I definitely never want to be arrogant but I don't have an imposter syndrome but I do feel from a female point of view that there are a lot of glass ceilings around and if I sense it then I don't try to enter that room to break the glass ceiling. In my mind, I think I'm just going to take another route. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, that's really interesting, oh, thought, right. really yeah. interesting. The process of creating music, Lisa, could mm. you just give us a little insight to how you would start off?
1: So I would say each piece has been really different with how I compose it. At the moment, for example, with my third opera, I might often um, compose a, an aria or a duet first, or I composed a... One of the choruses first, because sometimes it gives me a key in. Usually I'm really trying to create um, an emotion or a theme or a, an environment. And then I will compose textures and melodies around that. Sylvania is brilliant because she, you know, when people are meant to be sort of auditory or visual or text based, it might surprise you, but I'm incredibly visual, even though you'd think it would be the auditory. But I think I'm a visual learner as the absolute top and what was interesting is Sylvina who's the main um, professor of music at King's College London has been teaching me to compose and she'll show me pictures so she might show me a really contemporary picture where it's not um, an obvious naturalistic picture but it's broken up and she'll say do that with your music so we'll take a really beautiful melody and then we'll break it up we might do that. But there's loads of ways. But I, I use all loads of different techniques, actually, to try and get into the heart of something. On your website,
0: which is lisalogan.co.uk, you mention that you are into doing crossover projects. Can you explain what that means?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to do more. So I think crossover projects can be with a spoken narrator rather than a voice so I did that with the magical fish and um I'd like to do more actually I I don't know quite where this would lead because I, I think there's possibilities sometimes of maybe using um a a spoken character like theatre does but with music underneath that's obviously different to an opera that's sung I'd say watch this space on that because my mind's going with what I'd like to try but I haven't done it yet
2: one of my questions is going to be what's your ultimate big game when it comes to where you are now but obviously I think you've just said that you like to you don't like to plan you just like to discover things ahead Hmm. is that something how you feel
1: Oh, I mean, um, coming into composing later in my life, in a certain way, it's giving me more focus. Like you know, if I've got twenty or thirty years, hopefully, to to compose, what would I like to do? Um, I mean, opera is my absolute passion. So I think you know, it takes at least eighteen months to two years for each opera. So I just want to compose more operas. You know, I've got another two librettos already. So I'm composing my third opera now. I've got the fourth libretto. I'm going for breakfast with some, a librettist on Friday to try and persuade her to write another one and oh, the, wow. librettist, the librettist the for Silver Spoons also writing another one you know because you, it takes a while to get great librettos so in answer to your question I, I love strong female characters and I do feel as, as amazing as contemporary operas are that I feel there's not enough really good female characters mm-hmm. yeah so if there's anything I can contribute it's driving that as a composer to insist upon it in the librettos yeah. in my dream I'd love to do some some symphony work, do a symphony. That Mm. would be my real dream. But it it is difficult to get those opportunities. Um, But Hackney Brombs have asked me to compose a quintet. Uh, I'm still composing that for the November. Just smaller projects are equally uh, rewarding.
2: You say that you were a late comer to, to opera. Obviously, you always loved music, so you're not really late, but you're late to composing, as you say. Mm. Um, to maybe even an older generation or a younger generation, what would you say to somebody who wanted to compose? Where would they begin, do you think? you know
1: What would be a sort of a first step for them? I mean, I would say really make sure that you've got the, the fundamentals. So just make sure that you do do harmony courses and counterpoint. points. Mm. Because I think that even when you break those rules, you come back to them. And I've been incredibly careful to make sure that I've got the fundamentals taught well. And then depending upon which route they want to take, I would say just make sure you've got some financial stability. So my legal career is enabling me to have some financial stability so I can do styles of music that don't make much money. So, you know, opera composers probably won't make anything. And classical music, unfortunately, I don't think pays particularly well, which is why a lot of people do end up uh, being university professors and things. You know, I'm not looking to have another career that pays me. But you see, his composing could pay a lot if they're going to film and TV. So I think it just depends what they like as to whether they then need some bread and butter.
0: We've already mentioned that you've got a couple of premieres coming up, Really exciting. Yes, that's right. Um, we've got the love story of Princess Diana and Dodie Fayed, the silver spoon, as well yes. as the magical fish, which you've mentioned. Uh, in fact, the, the premieres are about five days apart, aren't they? That's all kind hey, of oh, never rains, but it pours.
1: I know. I just, I'm, honestly, I honestly, I actually haven't told anybody on my course because I just think, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> I, just, I just think that's slightly, slightly embarrassing. In your I'm face. Like, <laughs> I know. I, I did say to you, I don't want to be arrogant. So I'm not totally one. I'm so <laughs> I have told friends, and obviously we're publicising both really effectively, but it's just a bit of luck. You know, some of this is luck. So The Magical Fish, it's a free um, concert for the Jubilee in Limehouse, and um, yeah, what's just really exciting is, yes, it's opportunities for me, but I'm just thrilled that we got funding for a free event for children and families in East London. You know, it it was just fantastic when we got that funding, and um, I don't know if you saw the BBC Jubilee pudding competition yes um but we've managed to get one of the finalists of so the five finalists to bake, bake cakes so you know we're just all we're just completely excited about this jubilee event oh, and fantastic. then and then like you say within five days we've got the premiere of a silver spoon which is the love story of princess Steiner and dodie and um yeah i just feel very lucky for two opportunities and the fact they're close was it was the funding for the jubilee it had to be done in june
0: mm. how involved with the with the productions have you been are you turning up to every rehearsal and going no that's not right or, or are you not involved at all or what's what's the balance
1: well um I mean I'm really very happy just to hand things over and uh, again I guess it's the maturity and the fact I did uh, I've got the professional directing experience from my 20s that the last thing I want to do is to be the annoying composer in the room <laughs> um but I hope it's been helpful because And because of COVID, we've actually completely planned uh, where people will walk already with the simple design. So I did say, I said, look, I think we need, we need this all planned. So if anybody you know, catches COVID again or whatever. We know what we're doing. Yeah. So it's all planned for that reason. So it wasn't like it was the composer stepping on people's toes. But we were just being practical because of the pandemic. So look, we need this planning. Mm-hmm. So we've done more planning than you would normally.
2: Silverspoon. I'm fascinated by the story of Diana and Dodie. I was fascinated by her as a person, as a woman. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested to know why you decided you wanted to write about them as an opera. What what gave you the inspiration to do this? I think it's rather good that you
1: are. Thank you. I I appreciate that. I definitely would like each opera project to be about really um, strong contemporary women. And I Mm. think Diana was I obviously would want to want to do something that's nobody's touched on for a live opera before there was something on tv but no one's done it as a live opera story I for things that I feel would work best with an opera and I think you know unfortunately what happened to them you know their tragedy the emotions but to do with her divorce and things Yeah, big operatic
2: yeah, subject matter true. actually yeah
1: and then my, you know, my job during the day as a media lawyer and mainly television, I'm I'm constantly with TV producers that are pitching ideas that would pull in an audience. And so I do look for things that I think would be bigger subject matter for an audience. So to me, mm. it, it all came from that. Mm. Mm. Some very well-known contemporary opera for me is a female stories that really frustrates me. Yeah. So um, it can be about um, a, a royal that's had an affair that's just a woman that's some kind of, you know, contemporary courtesan, I guess. All those others, which is about a wife and her lover. And I'm just like, this is all stuff that's like old-fashioned opera and you're just updating it. And where are the modern characters? And I feel Diana was a strong character. I mean, I know that she she did have lovers in her life but I think with Fire you know this is a a love story where she was free to have another man and I think she did amazing things with how she um, in a certain sense changed contemporary the modern royals so I I think there's a Big story there that I felt was really grabbing a female character and telling her story in ways that I think modern opera hasn't always done particularly well.
2: And do you stick to her story, or do you add lib a bit to it, or do you find that you want to add something that you thought she might have done?
1: Yeah, well, David, the so D- David um, Pima is the librettist, and um, so when he was writing, we had lots of conversations about you know how do we tell the story of Dodie and Diana because lots of people know the public face of Diana but obviously we see very little of the private so in the opera without giving too much away it's private scenes and of course we had to well David had to use his imagination with what would Dina and Dodie have said in private yeah well I'll yeah.
2: definitely Amazing. be looking out for that I know Absolutely. It sounds fabulous yeah. actually yeah it sounds brilliant It's been great to talk to you today really it has yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah thank you very much Lisa Logan and we'll be looking out for you to see uh, to see <laughs> what happens to you
1: thank you for chatting with me I really appreciate it
0: well, Lisa is absolutely thrilled, isn't she, to be doing the work that she's doing. I think she's really got the best of all worlds, Susie.
2: It is. but It sounds like she's off to an amazing start. It, it really is.
0: is. Yes, absolutely. And we wish her all the luck in the world. And we also wish all the luck in the world to Tetiana Preobrazhenska. It's such a worrying time for all Ukrainians and our heart goes out to them, really.
2: I was really impressed and I take my hat off to her and everyone. In Ukraine. And on that note, that's all we've got time for in this edition of Women Making Waves. We'd like to thank our guest today. Tatiana Preobrazhenska and Lisa Logan. We are always on the lookout to feature women living extraordinary lives, so please do contact us if you know of someone we should be talking to. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at WomenMakingWaves. You can also
0: find us on Cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website, WomenMakingWaves.co.uk, where you can hear all of our interviews. Views. Until next time, bye-bye.
2: Bye.